Would you remain standing as we pray together? Father, we come before you not to make you Lord, for you are Lord of everything. Lord, but to acknowledge you as the Lord of our lives. To proclaim your Lordship, not for your benefit only, but Lord, for our benefit as well that we might be reminded of whose we are and His greatness that has been made available to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Back in the, uh, the last church that I pastored, I had the privilege of being able to go to the Holy Land. And so uh, tonight's service is a travel log. I'm just going to show you my pictures from the Holy Land. Not really, but I do have a few that I would like to uh, introduce to you. The first one here is the Valley of Armageddon. Some of you may have heard of that. It's in the northern part of uh, current-day Israel. And this particular picture is taken looking to the east. And so you're looking down the Valley of Armageddon toward Nazareth, and beyond the horizon is the Sea of Galilee. This picture was taken while I was standing on Mount Carmel. And you will remember that Mount Carmel was the location of the great showdown between Elijah, the prophet of God, and the prophets of Baal, which is depicted in, not that picture. Let's try another one. There you go. All right. That's the prophet Elijah, and this statue stands on Mount Carmel today. And the, the third picture, this one, is the summit of Mount Carmel. And this is the location where Elijah would have come, and he would have taken those 12 stones and stacked one upon the other in his great battle with the prophets of Baal. And I, as I was there, I imagined that uh, that altar might look similar to those stones that are stacked one on another right there. And so that made that experience of, of being there on that mountaintop very special uh, for me as I relived that experience. I want to uh, take us to that story. I imagine that most of you are quite familiar with it. You will remember that from morning till evening, the prophets of Baal called upon their God, praying for him to send down the fire to consume their sacrifice. And yet that God never answered, and the fire never came. At the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah prepared the altar, took those 12 stones, stacked them on top of each other, laid down the wood, laid that great sacrifice on top of it. Then he called for water to be poured over the altar, over the sacrifice, until it was drenched three times. And after the water had been poured upon it, Elijah prayed this simple prayer. O oh Lord, 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant and have done all of these at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. At the instant Elijah finished his prayer, fire consumed the sacrifice, consumed the stones of the altar, and we are told even consumed the water and the soil that was under the altar. The people responded by crying out, The Lord, He is our God. The Lord, He is our God. And they proved His Lordship over their lives by arising and immediately killing the prophets of Baal. As believers, how many of us have desired that the altars of our lives would exhibit the same kind of fiery power displayed by God through Elijah in this event. As ministers, how many of us have prayed like Elijah that God would manifest such fire of His glory on the altar of our service that people would know beyond doubt that we are His servants and confess Him as Lord of their lives. The good news is that the fulfillment of this fiery desire and prayer is possible. God is always looking for altars upon which He can manifest the fire of His glory and grace, that the world might know Him as Lord. God delights and desires that you that you, that you, that you, and that you would know and experience the all-consuming fire of His immeasurable presence. He delights in fulfilling that desire for us. And He has shown us how this can be achieved in our own lives, in our own ministry. Go back with me to Elijah's prayer. Take note of the statement. Let it be known today that you are God and that I am your servant. And, listen, have done all these things at your word. There's the key. Way back in elementary school science, we all learned that for fire to exist, there must be fuel consisting of air and some kind of combustible material. Without either elements of fuel, fire has no power. Without both of those elements, fire cannot exist. By his prayer, Elijah is revealing to us that the essential fuel 
for the fiery presence and power of God in our lives is air, the God-breathed word, and the combustible material, which is a servant willing to have his or her life fully consumed in obedience to that word. The fuel of God's fire upon the altar of our hearts is the God-breathed word and a servant willing for his life, her life, to be fully consumed in obedience to that word. If you and I truly desire to experience the power of divine fire in our ministries in the same way it was manifested in the life of Elijah, then we must possess the same fuel that he possessed. The Bible states there are three sources of that fuel that are effective for bringing our lives to the flashpoint spiritually when combined with God's Word. First of all, if we want to be servants of the divine fire of God, then we must possess the fuel of personal authority. In Matthew 7, verses 28 through 29, we read this testimony regarding the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus had finished saying these, these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. The people were acknowledging that there was an enormous and inescapable difference in the teaching of Jesus that was related not as much to its content or what he was saying as to its character and impact, the effect that it had upon their lives. And the difference is that Jesus taught with authority. When he spoke on behalf of God, it was as if he was speaking with the obvious approval of God as well as with the abilities of God. Although the prayers and messages of Jesus were never accompanied by the same physical man manifestations of miraculous fire that followed those of Elijah, the impact on his hearers was the same. When Jesus spoke, people knew the power and presence of God was in it. And they came to know that God is Lord and Jesus was his true servant. That's authority. However, we must understand the source of that authority if we hope to have it characterize our teaching as well. The teachings of Jesus possessed godly authority because his actions exhibited godly authority. When Jesus spoke the word of God, people recognized in it the presence and power of God because he demonstrated the word in his own life. He could preach the word with the conviction of divine authority 
because he had proven the divine authority of the word through his obedience to it. Whether it was facing humility in a stable birth or facing Satan in the wilderness or facing the cross on Golgotha, Jesus had committed his life to God's unshakable word. And in every instance, that word had been proven faithful and true. So when he preached the word, it was with the conviction of personal experience. He knew it was God's word because it had never, ever failed him. When you and I stand in the pulpit or podium, we too may preach and teach and counsel and sing with a convicting and convincing fire of godly authority, but only if our lives are filled with the fuel of obedience, complete and total obedience to God's Word. If we are living it daily. If we want to be servants of the divine fire of God, then we must possess not only the fuel of personal authority, we must also possess the fuel of personal application. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we read this testimony of the unmatchable power of God's Word. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I have a brother-in-law who used to work in the enormous blast furnaces of the steel mills in Gary, Indiana. If you have ever seen pictures of these furnaces, you will understand more clearly the imagery of this passage. In those blast furnaces, the fires are so white hot that it melts raw ore. Imagine if all the granite in Pikes Peak were to be liquefied to thick, gooey sludge and ooze down over Colorado Springs. That's what literally happens in those blast furnaces. As this sludge continues to boil in the intense heat of these furnaces, the different substances in it begin to separate. Impurities either burn off completely or rise to the top, and the pure metal settles to the bottom. These blast furnaces are so powerful that they can expose and transform ore even at the molecular level. The Word of God has the power to be the blast furnace of the soul. It is the vessel of the Holy Spirit who is the fire of God sent to search out, melt down, burn off, and transform even the most deeply hidden, ungodly impurities of our lives. There is nothing hidden from the Word of God. This was demonstrated in the life of Jesus when he greeted Nathaniel as a man in whom there is no guile without ever having met him before. 
when he told the Samaritan woman of all that she had ever done. And when he saw the true stumbling block of greed in the heart of one rich young ruler. When you and I minister the word of God, the word God intends that we should minister it in all this fiery power. To do so, we must be willing to use it to speak specifically, directly, and clearly to the real needs of individuals, not judgmentally, critically, meanly, or self-righteously, but nonetheless, firmly, fearlessly, lovingly. We must be willing to address the ugly, embarrassing, uncomfortable issues of life that we often hide so deeply that we forget they are there except for in our most introspective and honest moments. Not only must we speak to the deepest needs of life, but out of the Word we must show people how to meet those needs. I am embarrassed to say that in so much of the preaching and teaching of my life, I boldly exposed the wounds of people. But I never offered them the prescriptions of God's Word for the healing of those wounds. I showed them where they were hurting. I showed them where they were sick. But I never told them how they could be healed. When you and I stand in the pulpit or podium, we too may preach and teach and counsel and sing with conviction and convincing fire, but only if we are willing to apply the Word of God to the needs of individuals and offer them its specific directives for healing. If we want to be servants of the divine fire of God, then we must possess not only the fuel of personal authority and personal application, we must also possess the fuel of personal action. To illustrate this spiritual principle, we again turn to Jesus. In his encounter with the rich young ruler recorded in Luke 18, Jesus makes this statement. You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When I was in the doctoral program at Southwestern Baptist, I took a job for a short while selling Christian books door to door. Since I had never had a sales job before, I asked a successful sales friend of mine, named Ken, to mentor me a little bit. Ken taught me that the hardest task for persons to do and the reason most people make lousy salesmen is they can't close the deal. Most of us are perfectly capable of talking for hours about our product or about any topic in the world. 
However, we never get around to asking people to sign on the dotted line. We never ask people to buy. In contrast, Jesus asked every person he met to make a purchase of faith. He told Peter to cast down his nets and follow. He told the paralytic to pick up his bed and walk. He told the woman caught in adultery to go and sin no more. Jesus understood that the power of the word lies in the purchase. People cannot experience the power of God's word in their lives until they make the commitment of faith. It is the response of obedience that unlocks the fire of God's presence and power in a person's life. Yet how often do we preach the word from the pulpit, teach the word in the classroom, sing the glories of God's word from the choir loft, or share it in the counseling office without calling for a signature on the dotted line? God's Word always demands a personal response, whether we as ministers express it verbally or not. God's Word cannot be presented without a demand to respond to it. And the most tragic thing is that often that call to respond remains locked inside the minister's voice. When you and I stand in the pulpit or podium, we too may preach and teach and counsel and sing with convicting and convincing fire, but only if we are willing to give voice to the personal call to obedient action that was on God's lips when he first breathed the word. After I finished my studies at Nazarene Theological Seminary, I had dreams of being an Elijah. I imagine some of you are experiencing those dreams yourself. I envisioned that each week I would stand atop that small platform in the Gaylord Church of the Nazarene. Just like the prophet did on Mount Carmel. In my mind, I could hear the chords of, I surrender all. And see the people streaming down the aisles to the altar. Although now, I would be willing to admit to a bit of vanity and self-interest in that dream. I know that deep down in my heart, my true motivation was a genuine desire to see lives surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus and transformed by the presence and power of the living God. However, the reality of those early years in ministry never lived up to the dreams. That was disappointing and extremely difficult for me to accept. My first reaction 
was to blame the people in the pews. Well, of course, they're just carnal and stiff-necked. Graciously, God revealed that the reason my ministry wasn't seeing the results of Elijah and Jesus was because I wasn't living up to the standards that were established by them. My preaching didn't have the personal authority of fully living out the word. My teaching didn't provide the personal application would help people experience that would help people experience the healing of God's word. My counsel didn't call for the personal action from people that God expected in response to his word. Graciously, God has enabled me to continue my ministry in spite of all my shortcomings. And through the years, he has molded me into a better preacher and teacher and counselor. I am disappointed, though, that he hasn't done much with my singing. Although I am not yet at the level of Elijah or Jesus, God has kept alive in me that desire and dream of ministering in the full power and presence of his overwhelming fire. More importantly, he has kept alive in me the hope that it may still someday be. Along the way, there have been sparks and glimpses of what may be enough to keep me ever pressing toward the prize. I believe that this fire of the heart is your dream too. I know it is the greatest need of our churches. I know it is the greatest desire of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. I know it is within His power and His will to do it for each and every one of us gathered here tonight. If this truly is your dream and your desire, I would invite you to come to consecrate your ministry to the pursuit of personal authority, personal application, and personal action. Don't go out into ministry with your altar empty. Dedicate yourself to the development of these three biblical skills and God will overflow your life with the fuel of his word to flame the fire of his power and presence in your life and in your ministry. If you hunger for this foundation of ministry in your life and you desire to press after it with all your heart, Come during this song of consecration and we will close with a prayer of God's anointing for you and your service in his kingdom.